The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. But I do want to use an introduction like this because it conveys something of the hopelessness without a person that changes entirely when the champion arrives in the field. And that's a bit of what this passage this morning is about. So I'm hoping and I'm praying that if this passage this morning, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 23, if it, if it grips you, then you will see something of what your situation was like before and what it is now that our champion is on the field. And what should come out of you is thankfulness and reverence and trust and hope This morning we're focusing on verses 19 to 23 and we're picking up right at the end of last week's passage. You'll recall that what was going on in verses 18 and 19 is that Paul was telling us three things that we needed to see in order to walk in a worthy manner. In verse 18 he has two of them there. We need, if we want to walk in a worthy manner, we need God to give us eyes to see the great hope of what he's called us to. His great inheritance that he's given us and he's called us to when he saved us. And secondly, we also need to see just how vastly God values his people, his church, us. What he thinks of us. Those are the two things in verse 18. And then verse 19 adds that we also need to see his immeasurably great power towards us who believe. Power that you can't measure, but if you could, it's kind of like this. And that's what our section is this morning. Paul's going to add a few things that will help us see some of this power. The next verses, this passage, lay out, I think, three stages by which God has acted in power in Christ. Three stages that are just listed there. We're going to try to elaborate on them a little bit to help us think through them and understand them a little more. And at the end, I hope that we'll see that each one of these three stages calls for a similar response from us. This morning we're going to look at how God in power has made Christ king of all. And so we should respond by revering him and trusting him. God in power. These verses are coming right out of verse 19's discussion of power. God in power has made Christ king of all. And our response to that is supposed to be one of reverence and deep trust. Let me read the text. I'm going to start in verse 19, Ephesians 1, 19 to 23. So you're right in the middle of the sentence. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and and authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God in power has raised Christ, the first stage. 
God has wielded sovereign, majestic power over the contents of his creation, the events here that happen on this earth. And he has employed this power towards the effect of raising Christ from the dead. God in power has raised Christ. Remember how the end of verse 19 could literally read, according to the power of the power of his power? Remember, there's a certain redundancy there trying to emphasize something. There's a lot of power involved here. According to the power of the power of his power, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. God, in surpassing immeasurably great power, has taken a dead Messiah. That's what Christ means, Messiah, the anointed, the chosen deliverer. He's taken a dead Messiah and he has brought him back to life. And that is alarming. More alarming than we typically understand. See, it's kind of, kind of common Christian talk for us. But it is an alarming statement that the Messiah has been raised. Now, naturally, Jesus being brought back to life is astounding display of power because of the very fact that it is a resurrection. I have never seen a dead man come back to life. And neither have you. And if we would, we would be shocked by it. We wouldn't know what to make of it. It would be a stunning thing. But perhaps because it's such a common piece of of Christian teaching, and we're so familiar with it, and because we use shocking language, alarming language to describe other stuff, this doesn't really hit us very much. You know, we use the similar language to talk about the Astros making it to the World Series. You know, the Astros have never been to a World Series, ever. It's never happened. So the fact that they're there now is amazing, we say. And at the beginning of the season, they were 15 games under 500. They were horrible. And now they're in the World Series. It's a miracle. We talk like that, don't we? It's amazing. It's a miracle. But if the Astros winning the National League pennant and going to the World Series is an amazing miracle, then we need a whole new vocabulary to talk about the resurrection. But we don't have it, so we have to use the same words. But they are not on the same scale. It is amazing, it is astounding that Christ has been brought back from the dead. The people who first heard about it were shocked, terrified even, I think. Thomas, when his best friends told him it had happened, refused to believe it until he could put his fingers actually in the wounds. Can you imagine how that would strike you if you saw that happen? Someone that you would saw die, several days later you saw him alive again. It's, it's, it's very difficult to imagine what that would be like. But at the same time, as stunning as that is, we also have to recognize that Jesus' resurrection is not the only account in the Bible of dead people coming back to life. Jairus' daughter, the son of the widow at Nain, Lazarus, those names come immediately to mind. What's different about them from the resurrection of Jesus? Now, apart from the fact that it was Jesus who raised all those people, which should tell us something unique about Jesus, but apart from that fact, it's a good question. What is the difference? Is there any difference between Jesus' resurrection and these other folks coming back to life? Well, it is. The resurrection of Jesus the Messiah is different and alarming because of that word, Messiah. Jesus walked around claiming to be the Messiah, the one sent from God. And to talk about the resurrection of the Messiah 
is alarming because of the fact that the Messiah should never be dead in the first place. It's almost a contradiction in terms. Such an idea was offensive to Jewish audiences of the day. Try to get into their mindset. When Messiah comes, the anointed deliverer of God, when he comes, the scriptures taught, he will bring in the long-awaited last days. See, all of life was lived in the current age, looking ahead and hoping for the age to come. The last days that were always coming. And when the Messiah of God arrived, he would bring that time in. He would come to establish his kingdom, liberate his people from oppression. Repentance would sweep through the land. Messiah would reign and would cause righteousness to spread across all of the earth. The Spirit of God would be poured out on young and old alike. Young men would see visions and old men would dream dreams. That was the expectation. The last days, the age to come, the time of Messiah. And to preach far and wide that Messiah had come, but had been spurned by Jews and scourged by Gentiles and hung naked to die on a Roman cross. To preach that message in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth was highly offensive and nearly blasphemous. Messiah comes to deliver. He cannot die. How dare you say that, most thought. Furthermore, don't the scriptures teach that anyone who is hung on a tree is accursed by God? Not blessed. The Messiah is anointed and blessed, not cursed. And this Jesus you're talking about died cursed. Two strikes against him. There's no way he's the Messiah. There's, there's no way the Messiah was raised. You see the argument. And there's vehemence in it. It is highly objectionable. The Bible argues a different tact. Romans 1 says he was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is proof, in fact. Not a contradiction, it is proof that he is the anointed one. God did not let his Holy One see corruption in the grave. That's Psalm 16 in the Old Testament, preached by Peter at Pentecost. He did not let his Holy One see corruption. He did not let Jesus' body decay, but instead brought him forth alive again. The Holy One would not see corruption. It's in the Old Testament too. Jesus claimed to be God. And God did not strike him dead and permanently send him to hell. Instead, he approved of him and brought him back to life. He claimed to be the Messiah, bringing in the age to come with its deliverance and its resurrection. That was another significant marker of the age to come. The resurrection would begin. And God did not leave him dead, but instead did begin the resurrection in him. 1 Corinthians 15 points out that he is the first fruits from among the dead. The first to come back. The resurrection has begun, and there is no way... No way that if he was an imposter or a liar, absolutely no way that God would have raised him and made him exactly what he claimed to be. The beginning of the resurrection. The one who begins that time, who brings in that era. Do you see that argument there? Let me come at it a different way. Right after Lazarus died, before Jesus raised him back to life, Jesus is speaking with Lazarus' sister. You can see this in John 11. And he comforts her by telling her that Lazarus will rise again. And she says, yes, yes, I know. 
I know when Messiah comes, when the age to come comes, everybody will be raised to judgment one way or the other. I know he's going to rise again, Jesus. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. no, no. Don't look way down there to the age to come. The age to come is right here. I am the resurrection and the life, said Jesus. The resurrection is here. It is beginning in me. You can live if you are in me, if you are in Christ. Remember that phrase we've been seeing in Ephesians all over the place? If you are in me, you will live. I'm the Messiah. Trust me alone for your eternal life. Now, if all of that was a lie, if Jesus is lying to her right there, he's not the resurrection and he is not the life. He is not the Messiah. He is not God who brings in the age to come. If that is a lie, there is no way that God would have raised him from the dead. God does not validate blasphemers and deceivers. And this is deception of the worst kind. It is deception that would take a person to hell if they believed it. Glory of glories, God did display great power in bringing Jesus back to life. And in so doing, he places a massive stamp of approval on Jesus and all that he claimed and all that he did. He is God the Son. He is the Messiah, the only Savior for sinners. Every sermon in the book of Acts, every sermon there, includes the tale of the resurrection because it is massive, powerful proof that Jesus is the Messiah and that the age to come has come. Jesus is who he said he is. He does what he says he does. The end has begun in Jesus. The age of deliverance from sin, the age of outpouring of the Spirit, the age of the spread of righteousness, the age of the ingathering of the nations, the age of resurrection has come. We live in it now. God has seized hold of the hands of the clock of time and has moved them. Salvation history has taken its decisive step. It has turned the corner already. Messiah has come. We live in the last days. Resurrection proves that. Now to be sure, the age to come is not fully here. There is more to come yet. But it is already here. We already have it, but it's not yet full. Messiah has come, but he is yet to come again, and there is more to be done. That's true. It hasn't all worked out like anybody expected. Peter, in fact, says that the Spirit-inspired prophets didn't even get it all as they were writing about this age. That should give us pause should give us caution when we talk about our own theories about how the last ticks in the clock of time will work out. It's hard to understand this, but we can be sure because of the fact that God in power has raised Christ, we can be sure that God has made Jesus king of all and that he reigns in power over all of the earth and over all of time and that he is on the move and that he will somehow bring it all to proper conclusion at the proper time in the proper way. Jesus reigns because he's been raised. It's proven to us. So how are we supposed to respond to that? Well, I hope it's somewhat obvious we should revere and trust this Jesus. We should revere and trust the power that has been at work in Jesus. And after all, Paul's trying to illustrate that power. From verse 19, it's the power that is for you. 
power that works to control the circumstances around you and the circumstances inside of you to change you and make you different. That was in last week's sermon. If you want to think a little more about that, maybe you want to listen to that sermon again. But more than just trusting the power, we should trust the one who has been acted on in power when he was raised. He was raised and made king of all. And this calls for us to trust him and to revere him, to worship him. Now I want to speak for a minute to people here that I may not know, but who I think are here. People who are still weighing the options and are trying to evaluate this faith, this Jesus. The resurrection is saying something to us. Saying that God has made him king. And he wouldn't have bothered to do it if he didn't want to say something to you. I don't know where you are in this process. I probably don't even know you personally. I would love to. If you want to introduce yourself to me. But I want to issue to you God's call to you this morning. It's true that Jesus was hung on a tree. And it's true that anyone hung on a tree is cursed by God. That's in the Bible. Jesus was hung on a tree and cursed for a purpose. He was cursed so that you might not be. All of us born in Adam, all of us are under the curse of God. Every man, woman, and child born on this earth is under a curse from God because of our rejection of Him. And there is hope here because there is a way that the curse can be removed from you and passed on to Him. That's why He was cursed and the resurrection proves that it works. That it's true. He is who he said he is. He is the Messiah, the Deliverer. This is how he spreads righteousness through the earth. He saves people. And he will save you if you trust him. So his call to you is come. Come to hope. For most of us here, though, I know that we've already responded to that. What's the call to you? What's, what's the response to you? What does the resurrection say to you? It says, you're on the right track. He is the Messiah. He is driving history. He is in control of it. He has been made king of all. Hear the gospel again and believe it. You're no longer an object of wrath. The curse has been lifted from you and you are dearly, deeply loved children and heirs of the King. The gospel should hit you and should cause you to, to almost sit back and say, Glory. It should create joy in you as you think about what was but is not true of you. And as you think about what now is so gloriously true of you. And all of it because of the mercy of God. It should cause you to rest in joy and respond to Him in love and trust and reverence. He has saved you. Hallelujah. And it's true. He was raised. God has raised Christ, the first stage. 
But he did not just leave the resurrected Christ alive on earth for everyone to marvel at and wonder about. He left him here 40 days, long enough to prove it. And then, picking up in the middle of verse 20, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Here's the second stage by which God the Father has acted in power in God the Son. God in power has given Christ dominion. God in power has given Christ dominion. He has exalted him. He has elevated him to the highest position, returned him to his rightful status as ruler. Jesus was first raised and then second, elevated to the right hand and given dominion over all. Echoing Psalm 110, God the Father has said to God the Son, Come out from the grave, you anointed one, and come sit here in the place of honor and authority and power and victory. This is your rightful place here at my right hand, exalted over all. The place that you've shared with me for eternity past. One God in three persons, blessed Trinity. You and I shared this rule and reign for eternity past. And then you put that aside for a moment and you went down to the earth to be cursed and killed and raised and now come back and sit here with me and enjoy this. The Father has said to the Son, He's not just gone to heaven and like hanging out watching things. He has sat down to rule. That's what it means to be seated at the right hand. It's a phrase emphasizing authority. So keep reading here. We'll see where and over what he has authority. Christ is exalted in the heavenly places. And we discussed the heavenly places back in verse 3 when we first came upon them. You may recall that the heavenly places are referred to several times in this letter. And we had to work on differentiating the heavenly places from heaven, as in heaven opposed to hell. You may recall this, but if you weren't here, briefly we saw that when we talk about heaven and hell, what we see is that heaven is the place of eternal worship and glory and joy. There's no warfare there. Hell is contrary, the, the place of eternal torment and agony and pain and weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the two are set contrary to each other. But the heavenly places are a little different. Not quite heaven in the same way. Because as we look ahead at chapter 6, verse 12, we notice that there is spiritual warfare still in the heavenly places. So heaven is not exactly the heavenly places. There's a bit of a difference there. To sum that up, what we noticed is that the heavenly places are probably most equal to the spiritual realm. I want to use that phrase in, in place of it. The spirit realm that is parallel to our physical realm right now. It's going on right now. There is spiritual war there between various forces of evil and the children of God. The difference between the two terms of heaven and the heavenly places. Christ has been raised from the dead and has been exalted to the highest places in the heavenly realm, in the spirit world as well. He sits there in honor and victory, far above all various spiritual powers and forces of evil there. All those war against him and his people, you can look at verse 21 there. 
21 says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And, and in fact, every name that is named, both in this age and in the one to come, everything, whatever exists, whatever angels God created and then fell, whatever particular role they have in the spiritual battle, whatever, wherever, whenever, God in power has exalted Christ to the right hand, to the throne, and he sits over them reigning in power and victory. He has been given dominion over all of your spiritual enemies. All of them. Those who war against your soul and seek your destruction. Christ has dominion over. And that should mean something to us today. It probably meant, frankly, a lot more to the Ephesians who first read this letter. Their day-to-day world was much more consciously interwoven with the spirit world. If you lived in Ephesus or anywhere in Asia, you could walk down the street to a temple or to a shrine, or you could go over there and have a seance of some sort. I mean, we see that a little bit here in our world, but not not in the same way. They were very in touch with the supernatural, if you will, spiritual forces. And those of us who are Westerners very often look at that and kind of poo-poo it. Those are superstitious people. That's not entirely the case. Now, all the stories of, say, Greek mythology, that stuff's made up, of course. But there are real beings out there. There are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places seeking your destruction. And if they can't destroy you, at least your spiritual blindness, spiritual confusion, your spiritual dullness... They war against you all the time, even right now as we sit here. It's happening. It's going on. A professor of mine once said in the class, speaking to largely Americans, he said, now you guys are all Westerners, so you don't really believe this. But nonetheless, it is true. The universe is alive. It's alive. What he meant was all this stuff that we see here in Ephesians, these spiritual forces here in the rest of the Bible, they're real. That's what he meant. It's not just a physical world, a mechanical world. It's also a spirit world that we walk in all the time. The universe is alive. And Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And you would be lunch. But Christ has been lifted up over all of it. And given dominion. Because he's been given dominion. If you cling to him, you won't be lunch. That should mean something to us. Greater is he who is in us than he and all of his buddies who are in the world. All of those enemies have been put under the feet of Christ. You see in verse 22 there. He put all things under his feet. Gave him his head over all things to the church. Father has raised the Son, seated him at the right hand, and given to him dominion over all things. He's given him power and the actual exercise of power. To put something under your feet is an expression of utter domination. The image that should come to mind is like in Joshua chapter 10, when the Israelites are conquering the land. 
They've just fought a battle against the armies of five kings, and all the five kings have been defeated. And Joshua summons his generals and says, as the five kings lie on the ground, they're alive, but they're subjugated. They're lying down. He says to his generals, come here and put your, your big, armored, muddy boot right on the neck of each of those kings. The picture is strong. It's militaristic. It's about domination. The next thing that usually comes, and does come in Joshua 10, is their death. You stand on their neck of the one who used to oppose you and fight against you in battle, but has now been entirely subjugated. You stand on their neck, you rub it in a little bit, and then you kill them. That's what usually happens, and that's what should come to mind when we see the phrase, put everything under his feet. Strong military imagery. But the image is broader than, than only warfare. Fundamentally, it's getting at domination. That's the constant note here in these couple of verses. We see it in the seated at the right hand imagery. We see it again here in the all things under his feet. And then again in the headship imagery. Christ is head over all things. Starting to see a theme there. That which is labeled head is that which has authority. That which is in charge, which has preeminence. And it is clear Three different ways in these couple of verses here that God has powerfully acted to give Jesus dominion. He is head. All things are under his feet. He is ruling from the right hand, far above all other things. He's got dominion. He is king. He is in charge. He's calling the shots, wherever you want to put that. And he reigns over everything. Absolutely everything. All things under his feet. Head over all things. It doesn't just mean all sorts of things. The scope is far too broad. In verse 21, he's got all of these different powers, whatever you call them, and any other name named in this age and in the age to come. Paul is spreading the scope out far and wide. And it's the same scope that comes into verse 22. He reigns over all things. There isn't anything you can conceive of or anything you face that is not under the feet of King Jesus. Jesus is sovereign. He's God. What that word means, quite simply, is that he has dominion and control over everything. And we know from verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10, that this does not mean that everything is currently obedient to Jesus. That's obvious from life, and verse 10 tells us that too. God, according to the plan of his mysterious purpose, has determined that universal submission will not happen yet. It will not happen until sometime in the future. He's promised us there in verse 10 that it will happen, that all things will be brought back together and brought to heal under Christ's authority. And the good guys have some power and we're kind of fighting out to see how it works out. That's a dualistic world and that is not this one. We could look again at Job. Satan does some awful things to Job, but he has to ask permission to do them. There is one authority. Almighty God is in charge. He hasn't enforced all of that yet. We don't know when. We don't even know why he hasn't done that yet. But we can rest in the fact that he has told us that he will do it. It will come about at some point. And right now, his message to us is, look at the cross, look at the empty tomb, 
and trust me. I'm in charge. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. I have given you the spirit as a guarantee that your hoped-for future is sure. It's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, verse 14. I've told you how Christ has dominion over all things. Trust me. Nothing comes to this world. Nothing comes to you that does not first come by me. I'm in charge, he says. Trust me. But I know people in this church who are looking at bad news from the doctor. And I know people in this church who are looking at painful situations in their marriages and in their homes and in their other relationships. And I know people in this church who are without a job and are struggling with that. And I read the newspaper and I see 80,000 people dead in an earthquake and 3 million more left homeless in a Himalayan winter. How many more of them are going to die? It could be the largest human tragedy ever. That stuff's real. And there is absolutely no way that we can look at the real world and pretend there are no problems. That we can just put on a smiley face and say, everything is great and fine. If we do that, we've done that. God does not intend for us to do that. He doesn't call us to live some sort of an illusion, to deny reality. Try to pretend everything is just great and hunky-dory because it's not. It's not. But it does provide a way for us to deal with this. That's the third stage. The real world is filled with pain and loss and tragedy. God is aware of that. And I think has given us a strong means to deal with it. The third stage this is more brief, and here it is. God has given this risen, exalted, ruling Christ to the church. You see that there in verse 22? And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are his body, his children, his heirs, his lot, his chosen portion, the one in whom he delights, and he gave to us Jesus. What does that mean and why does it matter when we look up from our Bibles and bump into the real world? God the Father has given to his children a remarkable gift. He's given us God the Son. And the NIV translates it appointed, pointed head. It's true, he is head of the church. If he's head of everything, he's head of the church. But other translations do a better job in translating it literally as given. Not just appointed to the church, like somebody, some guy being given a job or an office. He's been given to the church. Been given to us. We are his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. That's a very difficult phrase to understand. I think what it means is that we are his body and he fills us. And he actually fills everything everywhere. There is no place that Jesus is not. He's everywhere, in charge of everything, but he is uniquely filling us, his body, because he has been uniquely given to us for a purpose. Here's the purpose. You look around at life, even when, 
Maybe even especially when it is painful, and tragic, and disappointing. You look at those things and you hold them up in front of you. Don't pretend they don't exist. Hold them up in front of you. I do this a lot, but I do it a lot because we all need to continually learn to actually do this, not just understand it. But hold that up in front of you. And then right next to that, hold up to that, right next to it, the risen and exalted and ruling Christ who has dominion over all things. Hold him up right there next to it, the one who has secured you in the gospel which is true. And look at both of those things right next to each other. And God gives you grace with, to have enlightened eyes that actually see this. If you see that next to this, what happens? Remember that seeing with an abiding effect, the seeing that changes you from last week? What happens when you hold both of those things up next to each other and you see them both equally? You really see this Jesus given to you. You see all that he is for you. What happens? Hope to carry on is supposed to happen. Joy amidst hardship happens. Love amidst misery. Patience amidst trial. Reverence amidst even horror. Tr trust amidst uncertainty. You learn to be content in all circumstances. We can't make these things happen to us. In fact, quite the opposite is what's normal, is what comes out of us in normal life. But that's the kind of life that honors God. It's the life of faith that says, I see these things and I trust you. It honors God because it lifts him up in front of all who are watching, all those spiritual forces who have come to the classroom to learn who is God and what does he do? Oh, he wins people's hearts like that? He fastens them to himself despite all their circumstances? It honors God tremendously. That's the kind of life he wants from us. It's also the kind of life we want. It's also the kind of life that we need that gives us perspective on these things. It doesn't chase them away or make them suddenly become good. It just helps us see them in the right light. Gives us a greater good to look at and love and worship and trust and revere. We're transformed inside. If that Jesus will grip us, he's been given to us so that we'd be gripped. And if that Jesus will grip us, he will change us. We'll become different people who see things differently, who feel differently, who love differently. That's so why he gave us Jesus. It's the title of a book out that I have not read. The title is called God is the Gospel. What do you get in the Gospel? God. You get Jesus. What we really need. He's given Jesus to the church. That's the abundant life that's been promised to us and it is available to you. So why in the world... Do we so often live anything but abundantly? Well, part of, part of it should be obvious from that. We don't have eyes to see. We don't really see this Jesus. So we have to pray, pray, pray. God would open our eyes and help us to see him and value him. We're saved. We have natures that even though redeemed still slouch towards sinfulness and blindness. And we have an enemy. And we live in a world that is warring against us. We've got to fight. Not fight against other people. The battle is against the spiritual forces and it is fought by using the ordinary means. Remember that from last week? The three ordinary means. 
prayer, scripture, and fellowship with those who are praying in the scripture. Ordinary because you've heard of them before. There's nothing elaborate about them. But we have to fight. We have to take up these weapons and use them. We pray, pray, pray for God to open our eyes and let us see him. But where do we see him? We see him in the scriptures. That's why he gave us the Bible, that we could see Jesus in the scriptures. And then we fellowship with other people who are praying and praying and praying over the scriptures to try to see God. We fellowship with them, and God comes to us, comes to our hearts. We see him with heart-enlightened eyes. Somebody used an analogy once of how we are off-roading through life, and somebody, an enemy of ours, keeps throwing mud on our windshield so that we can't see And fighting with the means of the scripture and prayer and fellowship with other believers is like hitting the windshield wipers and the windshield wiper fluid repeatedly. You can't just do it once every mile or two. The mud keeps coming. You've got to do it constantly. We fight to see. He's given us Jesus so that we could interconnect to him. We could fellowship with him. God in power has given Christ to us the means of coping with all the other stuff in life. It's a way to see it in proper perspective. We need to seek him, trust him, repent when we don't, and then do it again. Jesus is far more than a talented basketball player, and we are in far more than a basketball game or some other sporting event. But the good news of the gospel is that amidst our very real struggles, we have received very real, very strong hope. In the gospel, we have been given a reigning Christ who has been raised and elevated to dominion. He's been given to us. And we can meet him. We can know him. We can interact with him. Jesus is the sovereign Lord of all the creation, exercising control over all things, and he will one day put an end to the rebellion. But even now we can know him, and we can walk with him, can fellowship with him. He's been given to us. Praise God. Seek him in the scriptures and pray for eyes to see. God in power has made Christ king over all. And our response should be to him, to revere him and trust him and fight to see him more and more. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.